And take your copy of the Bible and turn to Isaiah 33. We continue our trip through this prophetic book, often treated as the fifth gospel. Now, I'm going to read the whole chapter, but our sermon today is largely going to uh, focus on the latter half, uh, 13 and following. All right. This is God's Word. It was written for you today. Hear the Lord speak. Ah, you destroyer. You yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it's leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You conceive chaff. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in fire. Here. You who are far off what I have done, and you who are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks uprightly, sorry, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? 
you will see no more. The insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken to us. In the reading of your word, would you please speak in its preaching? Give us belief, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Some of you know, uh, the Lord has blessed this church immensely. He's been so generous to us. Day after day, night after night, week after week, month after month, year after year. One of the ways that he's blessed us is uh, through you. Uh, We have so many stories of the various ways that God has been our provider, but he has been our provider through the people that he's placed in the pew, so to speak. Your kindness, your encouragement, your obedience, your godliness, your giving— In fact, actually, it's that last one that is impacting the session currently. You have been so faithful. You've given generously as a congregation, given aggressively as a congregation, given and given and given, and the Lord has been kind. Uh, This year, we've been aggressive in paying off uh, the debt on this building way faster than what we thought we were going to. Uh, every extra dollar that we have, we dump into debt reduction, we dump into debt reduction, we dump into debt reduction to get out. And the Lord's been very kind. He's blessed us through you, and it set us up in a situation actually as a leadership team uh, where the session is having to figure out, okay, what do we, what do, we do next? And we took out a, a mortgage on this building that was very much within our uh, expected uh, payments. We could make the payments kind of through our annual budget. But on top of that, you've given so much that we're paying it off faster. And it's kind of forced us to ask the question, well, what's next? Uh, once we've paid this off, what's next? But even as the session has started asking what's next, we've, I think, wisely so kind of backed up one step and said, well, before we figure out what's next, we need to very carefully pin down what kind of church do we want to be? Right? It's a very important question. What kind of church do we want to be? I mean, an example of that would be, okay, if we want to be the kind of church that doesn't have Sunday school, what's next doesn't need to worry about Sunday school rooms. But if we want to be the kind of church that has nursery and has Sunday school and has a place where all of our people can sit for a meal for the fellowship hall, well, we need to probably build that next. (laughs) We need to figure out something, uh, some sort of way that we can get all of our people together. What do we we want to be? 
That's actually one of those kind of under, uh, uh, underestimated questions. What kind of church do you want to be? Uh, in fact, oftentimes in institutions, they kind of get a life of their own and they just continue to grow and continue to be uh, without ever thinking, anybody thinking, what do we want to be? Well, as you might guess, Isaiah 33, I think in some fashion, provides not the fullest of answers, not the only answer in the scriptures, but does provide, particularly in the latter half, some very important ideas for what the church is supposed to be. What, what the church is supposed to look like, what the church is supposed to act like, what the church is supposed to believe, what are we supposed to be? Now, this is answered within a very specific kind of historical context where we are in the book of Isaiah is in the middle of a series of woes while we're toward the end of it, a series of woes that are largely dealing with the judgment that is coming on the people of God. Both the northern and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, are not walking with God. The northern kingdom particularly is an abomination to the Lord uh, and is getting ready to be invaded by the Assyrians. They're going to be wiped off the map and functionally disappear for a very long time. This chapter here is largely in response to that invasion when it takes place as pondering what is our God doing? What is our God doing when his own people are invaded and wiped off the planet? What is God doing with his own land is invaded and ruled by foreign evil rulers? What is God doing? And through all of this, he's been kind of wrestling through the two extremes, Isaiah has, the two extremes of the consequences of sin and this also being the backdrop of God's mercy. This invasion is the consequence of sin, but this invasion also will be the setting in which God will display immense mercy. It's part of what has made this book so beautiful so far is that as he speaks of the mercy that will follow this invasion, uh, Isaiah and God himself is blurring the line between the restoration of the land and the coming Messiah. So that even as the Assyrians are defeated, we have problems distinguishing, is he talking about victory over the Assyrians or is he talking about victory over everything else in Christ? Yes. <laughs> yes to both. It's the beauty of the book of Isaiah. It's conflating this kind of temporary, temporal located in time and space victory, but also with the total victory that is in Christ Jesus. It's talking about the victory at the cross, but even the victory in the second coming at the end, the day when time ceases to be time. We see that really largely set up at the beginning of the chapter, uh, these opening kind of uh, grievous statements, oh, you destroyer uh, who yourself have not been destroyed. This is directed at the Assyrian nation. They've been, uh, when they invade, uh, they've betrayed trust, they've hurt God's people, but the Lord himself will be the one who provides salvation. Verses one through six lay that out, that God himself will be victorious. He is the one who will conquer his enemies. He is the one who will redeem and provide for his people. Verses uh, seven through uh, 12 or so uh, lay out how God himself 
will judge all of the peoples of the earth, uh, how he will uh, not turn a blind eye to sin, but all of the nations, not just Assyria, all of the nations will come under the judgment of God. And the two themes that we've talked about at length throughout the book, but not stopping there. As in verse 13, we have a major turning point, at least in this chapter, where the invitation is given for all peoples to hear, to listen. Hear you who are far off, far, far away, what our God has done, you who are near, listen, hear what God has to say. Hear what God is talking about. Now, for the rest of the chapter, the Lord here is going to say a lot of things, and he's going to say specifically what his plans are. He's going to say what he is accomplishing. He's going to say what is important to him, what he values, and kind of in the framing of the introduction, he's going to say what kind of church we need to be. Now, he's going to use the language here not of church, but of kingdom. What does the kingdom of Christ look like? What does the kingdom of God look like? What are the things that excite God? All right, so verse 13, we get to it here. You who are far off, what I have done, you who are near, acknowledge my might. So what's going to follow is God's self-identification of what is important and what he is passionate about. He is about to hear self-identify what showcases his mighty power, what showcases his grandeur and his greatness. He is about to tell us what we should be impressed by. That's helpful. Sometimes we miss it. Interestingly, verses 14 through 16, it starts in a place that I think many of us would never start with. If we wanted to have a conversation about how great our God is, how big and great and strong and mighty, we would talk about hurricanes. We would talk about earthquakes. We would talk about the the size and scope of creation. We would talk about the, the height of the mountains or the depths of the sea. That's where most of us would go. We would describe something in power that we can tangibly understand in creation. If we wanted to actually be a little bit trendy, you might even reference the atomic bomb, right? As that's being very popular in our kind of cultural moment right now. Interestingly, that is not where God goes. He says, you want to see my might. You want to see how powerful I am. You want to see how great I am. I'll tell you exactly where to look. My people. Well, I didn't see that one coming, did I? That's not where I was expecting you to go. Look at my people. In fact, actually, look at my people. There's three marks here in 14, 15, and 16. Three marks that showcase my power in my people. Things that you would not see anywhere else except for the Lord himself at work. 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us? can dwell in the consuming fire. Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burnings? What you're already seeing is a mark. God is at work. And when God is at work, there is a sensitivity towards sin. Not not a hardening, 
Right? That's the whole kind of point of the book of Hebrews. The point of the book of Hebrews is you have a people group that have, they've grown dull in their heart. They've drifted away from God and their hearts have gotten hard. And so the author of Hebrews is calling them to marvel at Jesus. Look, be impressed at how big Jesus is because your hearts have hard. You've wandered from God. It's intriguing. Here's the opposite. You want to see how big our God is. You want to see how great our God is. Look at people who are tender towards sin. Don't take it lightly. Who grieve over it. Who mourn over it. Who are sad over it. Who try to kill it. Who try to change it. Those that hate sin. And that's the negative, those that hate sin, verse 14. Verse 15 is the positive. Not just those that hate sin, but those that love godliness. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bride, who stops his ears from the hearing of bloodshed, shuts his eyes from looking on evil. This is a person who's being described as, as holy, And it's a a comprehensive holiness that's changing who they are and how they are. I mean, think about it. They speak upright words. Their mouth isn't filled with the words of evil. They don't enjoy the gain of oppression, meaning they're not active participants in profiting at oppressive Uh, profiting from oppressive methods or oppressive systems that are benefiting them. That's not talking about a good or savvy businessman. Uh, This is talking about the kind of businessman that that profits from a system in which it actively oppressive, suppresses, and controls people. A person that's actively uh, so not in love with their money that they don't take bribes. They don't need bribes. They're just and righteous And these last two, I think, are really impressive, something that maybe our culture ought to think about a little bit. Those who actively stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and those that actively shut their eyes from looking on evil. This doesn't mean that these people are those that kind of like an ostrich have their head buried in the sand. It's not that these are the, right, the three wise monkeys, speak no evil, see no evil, hear no evil, right? It's not, that's not it. What's, what's being described here is a person that is so in love with the, the law of the kingdom of God that they don't delight. They don't delight in the evil of the culture around them. They're not kind of constantly seeking that kind of titillation from the culture around them. They're not constantly like, ooh, I wonder what's going on, not having their senses uh, attuned to the evil around them. Again, this is not talking or commanding a naivety. Certainly be aware, Jesus talks about this at length, be shrewd as serpents, uh, be gentle as doves, uh, don't turn a blind eye to the, uh, the, the evil culture around us. What's being talked about here, though, is a heart that's not in love or captivated by the evil. You see, it's really kind of a logical development 
A sensitivity towards sin, a love of godliness, which is producing kind of a pervasive purity. A person who doesn't love the evil, who doesn't delight in the evil, doesn't want to participate in the evil, doesn't profit from the evil, is not consumed with evil. That's intriguing to me. That this is where the Lord goes for his boast. Now, the Lord is allowed to boast in himself because he's worthy of it. He's God, it's righteous, it's holy, it's perfect. In fact, actually, the New Testament tells us that we're supposed to boast in God, and boast in Christ. That's our only hope, our only boast. But interestingly here, he's walking us through kind of, look, you want to see my greatness. Look at my people. Look at my people, look, they're turning from sin. They're turning to godliness. They're they're being radically transformed in their godliness. Even verse 16, this is also being worked out in God's provision. They're gonna dwell in the heights. They'll be in a place of defense with the rocks and even God himself will provide for them. Look, I will take care of them. You want to see my greatness, look at my people. Look at my people. Now, This is an important thing, I guess, kind of for us to think about as we go to contemplate what kind of church we want to be. What kind of church do we want to be? Well, uh, I think most of us would probably be kind of with it enough to say we want to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, right? We don't want Michael to be in charge. That's not very good. We don't want Brandon to be in charge. That's not very good. We don't want our session to be in charge. That's not very good. We want Jesus to be in charge because it's his church. As wonderful as our elders are, as wonderful as the pastors are, we want Jesus to rule the church because it's his. And so we have to ask the question of what kind of church do we want to be? And if we're going to look at the text, it's interesting, uh, the Lord is excited about his people. And specifically, he's excited about his people in regards to their relationship with sin, in regards to their relationship with holiness, and in regards to their resting in him, his provision. And I think maybe that perhaps gives us a couple of ideas and things that we should think about and be challenged about. Uh, I give just a couple of brief applications on this. One is, I think for many of us, the very existence of this boast is a challenge to how we think. And I'll put it this way. Maybe say it a little differently. The Lord says, you want to see how powerful I am? Look at my people. You want to see how great I am? Go look at the church. You want to see how wonderful I am? Go look at the church. And currently, I would say maybe in America today, it's certainly very trendy to be very critical of the church. To have a very negative view of not just this church, I'm talking capital C church. To to have this this kind of criminally low view of who God's people are and what the church actually is. To despise, low-key despise the church. I teach young men uh, preaching at the seminary and it's amazing how easy it is for preachers to be critical of the church. To speak negatively of her, to, to have her failings and to bring them to light and to make it so obvious to everyone the limitations of the church. And I think it's intriguing. Nobody knows the limitations and failings of the church more than the Lord himself. 
And yet he is the one who says, look at the church to see my greatness. Look at the people to see my beauty. Look at your neighbor to see my grandeur. Look at each other. So application, I guess, for us. Maybe it might be a good idea for us to intentionally cultivate the practice of looking around at each other and seeing the people in this room as proof of the greatness of God. Right? I mean, you really, honestly, if we kind of stopped and think about it, it it really isn't that hard to think about how easy it is for some of us to say, well, I used to be this way, and now God changed me. Look at the kind of man I was, and look at the kind of man I am, or you ladies to say, look at the kind of lady I was, and the kind of lady I am. Look at what God has done. Look at how he's changing me. Look at how he's growing me. Some of us in here, honestly, perhaps need to cultivate that actual habit of looking at the best in the people around us, not the worst. I made this kind of application very regularly when we were in the other building before we moved in here to say that as we grow and as we built and as we think through these things, it's going to be so easy for us to get our toes stepped on. And I have joked with some of you, some of you have very large feet. It's easy to hit them toes. In fact, it's hard not to at times. But it's intriguing that that's not how our God looks at each other. He doesn't look at us that way. In fact, actually, he speaks of the church as the bride of Christ. And when does he consider her beautiful? This is a really interesting theological point. When does God find the church beautiful? Is it only at the second coming when she's made perfect? Or is it before? That's really interesting, isn't it? It's before. He finds her beautiful even now. That's why he's boasting in his church even now. That's why he's boasting in his people even now is because he's saying, look at the power already in front of you. Already on display. Some of us, that's an easy thing to do to marvel at God's power in each other. Other of us, maybe a little bit bit harder thing to do. And in that case, I would lovingly say for you, this needs to be an intentional effort to be able to rejoice that we have in this body people that are growing and people that are changing and a changing attitude toward sin and a changing attitude toward godliness and to rejoice in the power of God. Now, the text doesn't stop there. That's 14 through 16. Now he turns to kind of, kind of the nature of the kingdom, the nature of the king, Second boast, second thing to marvel at, second thing to be amazed at God's power is the very power of the king himself. Now, this is ultimately talking about King Jesus. This is not David or Solomon or Saul or anybody else, but Christ himself. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, and they will see a land that stretches afar. Now, uh, that land would have been portrait of an inheritance and wealth and provision and safety. And to say that, look, what you're going to have in this kingdom is you're going to have the king. And what's the significance about you will see the king, you'll behold the king? Well, 
currently we live in a, a great nation and we have mm, questionable rulers, uh, but can I go see Biden anytime I want? Can I go see the president? What would happen actually if I tried to waltz in and go see the president right now? Would that go well for me? It would not. You would see me on the news, right? They would be carrying me away in handcuffs and sending me into some hole in the ground that I would never ever get out of, wouldn't it? But interestingly, what's the kingdom of Christ look like? Definitively, where is the king located? Is he located so far away that you never see him? Is he located locked away behind closed doors so you can never find him? Where is this king located? Well, your eyes are going to see him because he's going to be right there. He's going to live with you and among you. He's going to dwell among you. He's going to be God with us and your eyes will be able to see him and the blessings that he brings will flow to the ends of the earth. Even when you go to worry about kind of uh, the, the nature of our enemies, they seem so powerful. They seem like they're, uh, they're ruling and reigning. It seems like the bad guys are winning, verses 18 and 19. They're not gonna win. They're not gonna win. In fact, these are defeated rulers. These are defeated enemies. Verse 19, I do, does need a little bit of commentary as it does speak of a thing maybe that needs some context. You will no more see the insolent people. So this is, again, you think Assyria, do this backwards so it's geographically right for you. Assyria is invaded. Uh, They did not speak the same language. And so, so much of this book speaks of the enemies of God as those uh, that are ignorant or insolent or uh, other language foreigners because they're from a different nation. You will deal no more, see no more the insolent people, the invaders, Those that have come and conquered your lands, you're not going to see them anymore. You will not see a people of obscure speech. Again, that's those enemies that have invaded and taken over Israel. You're not going to have to deal with those that you cannot comprehend uh, and those that have a stammering tongue. Again, that's just a, a, a language issue. So all of your enemies will not be dwelling in your midst. You will not be able to see them because they're going to be removed, but the king himself will be in your midst. And there's an element that this is already fulfilled in some fashion in the church, but not yet fully. Already we see the king lives in our midst. And his victory is here. This is, I guess, maybe the second thing in thinking about what kind of church we want to be is we want to be the kind of church where Jesus is present. And you might say, well, that seems kind of obvious. Like, what's the point of the church if Jesus isn't present? But you'd be amazed at how many places exist just for institution's sake. That stay doing things just for tradition's sake. It's because that's the way it's always been done. And you go back and ask why, and people are like, I don't know why we did it that way. It's just always been done that way. I don't know. It is what it is. Instead, no, we want to be the kind of church that's actively, intentionally celebrating and, and focusing on and being devoted to the fact that the King of Kings, our King, lives in our midst. To be the kind of church that's preoccupied with the Lord Jesus. Now, there, there is a danger here. And truthfully, there is the danger here that we kind of quietly as we get bigger, or as there are more people, or as there are more activities, 
that we be the kind of church that says it's about Jesus but never actually is. And you know why that's so, such an easy danger for an institution? It's such an easy danger because it's such an easy danger for individuals, not just institutions. Friends, some of you, uh, I'm gonna hurt your feelings perhaps, some of you say that you are devoted to Christ, but there is no proof of that in your life. You don't meet with him. You don't talk with him. You don't get excited about being in his presence. You really kind of more tolerate him than anything. And that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to have to admit. Many of us have been there at some point in our life. If you've been a Christian for a long time, most of us have all entered that point in a season at least where we have to kind of come to terms with the fact that maybe my heart isn't quite as soft as it used to be. That maybe my heart actually isn't devoted to the Lord the way I want it to be. And maybe it's time that I have a kind of come to Jesus conversation. In fact, actually, it's so easy for individuals, it's certainly easy for institutions. And I would say even beyond that, one of the easiest ways to help keep this church on track is to keep yourself on track. To have a heart that's devoted to the king, that's actively pursuing his presence, that's actively pursuing growing in grace and walking with Jesus. To be the kind of church that's found at the footsteps the feet of Jesus, worshiping and obeying. That's 17 through 19. The Lord boasts as his name is great, his power is great, his might is great. You can see it in his people. You can see it in the kingdom of Christ Jesus and his kingship. But then verses 20 through 23, he then explains, and you can see it for how I take care of them. You can see it in how I provide for my people and I provide for them stability in the midst of a chaotic world. Stability and strength in the midst of insanity and chaos. Stability and peace in the midst of heartache and hurt. Four verses, 20, 21, 22, 23, all highlight a different aspect of that stability. 20 highlights that we have worship and stability in the midst of a pagan and chaotic world. Behold Zion, right? And that was Jerusalem, but kind of emblematic. It was a symbol for all of God's people and their relationship with the Lord. Behold Zion, the place where my people meet with me. It is the city of our appointed feasts. The appointed feasts were one of the mechanisms whereby they knew the Lord. Look, behold the kingdom of Christ. Behold the church. This is where God dwells. You will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation. I love that. I mean, it's not probably the most beautiful English, but the concept of an an untroubled place to live. An immovable tent. We don't live in a nomadic culture, but most of this, these people would have been in some form or fashion. And the idea of an immovable tent, right? You know, it's the house that's built not on the sandy land, but on such stability that nothing can ever move it. 
untroubled and safe. The stakes will never be pulled up. The cords that hold the tent out will never be broken or cut. It will be a house that stands forever. This is a really foreign concept in our country because our history isn't that old. We don't, we don't have buildings that have been around for longer than two or three hundred years. We don't, you can't, you know, walk down the street and see, oh yeah, this building's a thousand years old or that building's a thousand year old or can't go to see the pyramids where it's, oh yeah, that's three or four thousand years old or whatever else. But what they're getting at is this is a, God's people, the church is a stable institution. It's enduring because the Lord himself will provide for her and provide for her worship. Verse 21, provide for her provision. And the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, right? Broad rivers and streams in a uh, slightly arid um, ecosystem would have represented great wealth because you would have water and great access to it. But the danger with great water would be that it would bring ships and invaders and all sorts of things. And uh, instead, at this point, you don't have to have ships, invaders. You don't even have to have trade because the Lord has blessed the land so richly that they have everything that they need. There's no even ships or galleys or whatever. It's not needed. Provision and stability. 22, the lawgiver that this is a stable nation because it has God's law, a good judge and a good king. 23, again, safety, the the sailing illustration, the the no invaders coming by the sea. The Jews hated the sea. It was a picture of chaos and instability. And here saying even water itself becomes one of the sources of blessing, not one of the sources of destruction. And it's interesting You would think that would be kind of maybe the place you would stop. If the Lord is boasting about his might and his grandeur, okay, we probably all would have gotten it wrong at the beginning because he he doesn't really turn to creation. Instead, he turns to his people and says, look around. You want to see how mighty I am? Look at each other. Look at the people in the pew next to you. That's going to show you how mighty I am. And then after that, he turns from that to say, well, if you also want to see how mighty I am, look at who Jesus is and look that he lives in your midst. Look that you have access to him at any time. You can pray. You can hear his voice in the scriptures. You have Christ all of the time. That would be pretty mighty and spectacular. Or third yet, he then turns to, I'm protecting you. I'm protecting you from all the scary things that you don't even know exist. I'm providing stability in the midst of chaos. I'm providing strength in the midst of weakness. I'm providing and protecting This is one of the things Tom and I pray about often of just thanking the Lord for the things that he's protected us from that we never even know exist, right? I mean, you think about that, like when our kids were toddlers, for those that are parents of older children, when your kids were little, how many times did you save them from certain death with them having no idea that you did that? Right, where they they decided they wanted to go chase that butterfly out into traffic, and you grab their hand and yank them back before they could get in trouble. Certain death. They have no clue. How many times as a parent, if you hadn't been just one step faster, you know, you'd be one kid shorter. And they have no knowledge of it. The same way that we as adults have no knowledge of the, the dozens and dozens and dozens of times that our parents did that for us. We, we have no recollection of the ways in which we have been protected by our God. 
We have no recollection of the ultimate ways that we've been protected even by our parents. But we can look around and say he's doing it. He's faithful, he's taking care of us, he's providing stability and strength, but that's not even where the passage stops, does it? 24. No inhabitant, this is at the ultimate end, will say this part, no inhabitant of these people of God will even be able to say I'm sick because he's the God who heals. And the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. And I love that this is kind of the final concluding statement of the chapter. That if you really want to kind of see the mighty power of God, you can look around and look at his people and you can see ultimately their condition is that they will be victorious over illness. None will even be able to say that they're sick. Now, I love this because in the life to come, in the new heavens and new earth, none of us will ever be sick. But there is an element in this life where healing is guaranteed for Christians. And this is maybe a part that we don't talk about quite nearly enough, is that for Christians in this life, healing is guaranteed When we talk about terminal illnesses or talk about other things like that, we pray really for healing, but what are we actually asking for? We're asking for healing twice. Because we all know if we're in Christ, there will be a day where we will beat our illness no matter what. And the way we beat it is we'll we'll lose to it. We'll succumb to it. Cancer will get us or COVID will get us or whatever else, it'll get us but it will not keep us. Because interestingly, those illnesses and those diseases and those hurts and those heartaches and those sadnesses and those tears and those griefs are not strong enough to go into the grave with us. And they are not strong enough to be raised with us. And that's wonderful to think about. That all of those hurts and heartaches right now that are so big and so profound and so overwhelming and so huge are actually too weak to go where I will go and where you will go. They're not strong enough to follow you into the path of victory that you're going to tread at some point where we will all pass into the grave and leave all of our troubles behind where sickness will not follow before we are raised victorious. But even beyond that and ending with this, a people who are marked by forgiveness. The church are, people of God are, those that are forgiven in Christ Jesus Those who are able to sing what we've already sung, thy work's not mine, O Christ, my only hope. Not in myself, but that Christ lived and died and raised for me. And friends, what kind of church do we want to be? I mean, you probably thought I was going to get into some of the nitty-gritty of policy or philosophy of ministry or things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, we can talk about that. We're talking about session level. But even beyond that, we need to be the kind of church that marvels at the greatness of God, that he boasts in his people, that he boasts in his king, 
that he boasts in how he takes care of us, and that he forgives sins, that he heals people. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if we can get those four things as foundational pieces of who we are as individuals and how we operate as a church together, I suspect all the other stuff will be pretty easy. And we'll still have some arguments. We'll have some disagreements, right? You might want purple chairs. I hate purple chairs. I get it. I'm not mad at it. We're not going to have purple chairs. I get it. It's okay, though. <laughs> but I suspect those conversations will be infinitely easier if we can say, you want to see how great our God is? Let's look at these people around us. I love them because God loves them, and they teach me who he is and how big he is and how strong and how mighty and how good. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Even when it challenges us in ways that we maybe perhaps sometimes don't even like. And we ask that you would forgive us of sin. And oh Lord, would you prepare us for the life to come. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.